0: So uh, we are launching into uh, a new series this morning called The Year with Jesus, and we are going to be studying together in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to begin uh, our series by asking you a question. So if you were to go and ask a random assortment of friends or family members or relatives or neighbors to identify the person in this portrait, how many of them do you think would be able to do it? Maybe all of them? And they would say, it's Jesus. Yeah, this is Warner Solomon's portrait of Christ. It was reproduced over a half billion times. It is the most uh, well-known, well-sold portrait of Christ ever in human history. And uh, what's surprising, I think, is not just that we could identify someone who lived 2,000 years ago, but what's surprising is Jesus almost certainly didn't look anything like this. Uh, The first portraits of Christ don't appear until some 400 years after Christ. The four biographies of Jesus don't give us any idea what he looked like, but archaeologists, historians uh, from studying this time and place of uh, where Jesus was from have come up with something of a portrait that looks like this. And this was an image that appeared on, on, uh, I think it was National Geographic a few years back, and kind of doing the best research they can, coming up with what a first century Middle Eastern Jewish man may have looked like, and this is what they came up with. Yet what's interesting to me is that in spite of the historical inaccuracy, Jesus still has high face recognition in America. I mean, he's right up there with former President Donald Trump or celebrities like LeBron James or Taylor Swift or Beyonce. People can just recognize Jesus when they see him. But while Jesus may be able to, you know, people may be able to identify the person of Jesus in a portrait, I wonder how many people would be able to agree on the answer to this question. Who is Jesus? Well, combining all of the answers we might gather from that question, you might come up with an image like this. So this is thumbs up Jesus or the Jesus of good causes. And the Jesus of good causes depends on you. Uh, Author and writer Kevin DeYoung suggests some of these. There's, for example, conservative Jesus, who is against tax increases and activist judges and for family values and owning guns. And there's progressive Jesus, who accepts all people and all lifestyles all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded and progressive as you. There's spiritual mystic Jesus, who hates religion and churches and pastors and priests and doctrine, and he wants wants us to find a God within while hiking in the woods. And there's Marxist Jesus, who is against capitalism and for violent revolution and forced redistribution of wealth. There's white nationalist Jesus, who's for singing praise music while storming the Capitol and chanting, hang pence. There's smiley TV preacher Jesus, who wants us to be healthy and wealthy and live our best life now. There's boyfriend Jesus, as featured in many worship songs, who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> but my favorite is this, Touchdown Jesus which is appropriate for this time of year, who helps Christian athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and who determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. <laughs> and it all reminds me of a famous quote by George Tyrrells, a New Testament scholar, who said this, we have a tendency to look at Jesus down the deep well of human history and find our own face staring back at us. Or, you know, In the the language of Dorothy Sayers, she said this, the people who hanged Christ never to do them justice accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left to later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently parred the claws of the lion of the tribe of Judah, certified him meek and mild and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Now, I don't know. Maybe that's a little strong. Maybe the examples I gave are a little far-fetched. But I think a lot of us have found ourselves wanting to find in Jesus someone who supports the life we want to live, the stuff we want to believe, the political ideologies we want to embrace. We want Jesus to kind of endorse the way in which we already want to live. And I think one of the reasons for that is real practical. If Jesus endorses the stuff you already believe and the way you already want to live and especially spend your money, then it means that you don't have to change anything when you reorient your life around him, amen? Amen. (laughs) But that's not a good thing, so maybe I shouldn't (laughs) say amen. Um, But listen, I, I I think it's true that all Christians, all of us, and and people even who are just investigating Christianity, we do well to return again and again to the portrait of Jesus we find on the pages of the New Testament, and to discover afresh again and again and again who Jesus is and what he is about in this world, or We could put it like this. Last week, we talked about what discipleship is all about. We said discipleship is about devotion to the person of Jesus. It's about submission to the way of Jesus. It is about participation in the mission of Jesus. But that raises a question, who is Jesus who we're devoted to anyway? And what is his way of life? And what is he up to in the world? And what does it really mean to participate in what he's doing in the world? And to help us discover afresh who Jesus is as a community, what we're going to do is we are beginning this new series, A Year with Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're just going to lean into the gospel of Mark over this next year. And we want to just pay attention to who Jesus is and what he's about in this world. So, Today, what I want to do is I want to begin by looking at the first 13 verses in the Gospel of Mark. So uh, the different Gospel writers begin their books differently. Uh, John begins way, way back. He goes back before the beginning of all times. In the beginning was the word. Uh, Matthew and Luke take us back to the birth narratives of Jesus. Mark doesn't begin in the beginning of all things. He doesn't begin uh, with the birth narratives. Instead, where does he begin? Uh, He he launches out in these opening verses uh, by introducing us to who he believes Jesus is and then by introducing us to John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. And in these opening verses, Mark is going to assert for us his foundational answer to that question, who is Jesus? And so in this prologue, Mark's going to set all of his cards on the table before us, and he is going to reveal to us in essence, kind of in its most distilled form, who he believes Jesus is. Now, before we jump into the text, though, and see his answer to this question, I I want to um, share just a few factoids about Mark. So yesterday, we were talking to my daughter, Mia, on the phone, and Alicia, my wife, uh, she said to Mia, because Mia is up at... Uh, Seattle Pacific University, she is taking anatomy and physiology, which I never took because um, that's too hard for me. <laughs> but Alicia said to me, as she said, hey, could you just tell us some factoids you've been learning in anatomy and physiology? And she showed us these great little factoids that were so interesting. And just as a little gift to you today, I want to share with you a few little factoids about the Gospel of Mark as a little gift to you to help you kind of enter into this book as we... As we uh, Begin. So, uh, first, this book was written to Christians in Rome sometime between 64 and 68 AD, and it was written during a, so- a season of intense persecution. So, uh, in 64 AD, Caesar Nero began an intense persecution campaign against Christians in Rome, and it got bad for Christians. And it's during this season that Mark actually writes this book. And you're like, well, who is Mark anyway? Well, uh, Mark, uh, he, he, he is almost certainly the guy who's identified in the Book of Acts as John Mark. He was a travel companion of the Apostle Paul. A little bit later, he connected with the Apostle Peter. So Mark was, uh, he was kind of a who's who in the early church movement. He was a young, promising, bright, intelligent, probably uh, more well-to-do young leader. And he attached himself to Peter. And he followed Peter around everywhere. And in fact, um, there's a little um, uh, piece uh, uh, that was written by one of the earliest uh, church leaders, whose name was Papias. And he commented about the Gospel of Mark. And he tells us something so interesting. So Papias knew the apostle John. And so this is just fascinating. He tells us what John said about the book of Mark. So listen to what he says. He says, the elder, that's his reference to the Apostle John, used to say, Mark, in his capacity as Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately as many things as he recalled from memory, though not in an orderly form, of the things either said or done by the Lord. And he made it his one concern not to omit anything he had heard or to falsify anything, And so the picture that emerges is that Mark traveled around with the apostle Peter, listened to him preach, and tell these eyewitness accounts, first-person experiences with Jesus. And he heard these stories, and Mark is just writing them down. And probably what happens is, Peter died between 64 and 60 AD during the Neronian persecution. And probably to capture the memory of the apostle Peter for us all, Mark began to write it down after the living witness of Jesus would no longer be with us. And so that is the gospel of Mark. Now, notice where he begins. Look what he says. He begins like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, I I love great beginnings to books. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a dry, anyway, I won't go on. There's all kinds of of good first lines. This is Mark's first line. And listen, it is not a throwaway line. This, almost every scholar believes, this is Mark's summary statement. It is his thesis statement of everything he's going to write. In other words, Mark is giving us here, in essence, his main claim, the main thing he wants us to see about Jesus. And what does he want us to see about Jesus? What is the news that he is announcing to us? It's that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the word I want to draw your attention to is this word, Christ. Christ. So Christ is used in the New Testament 135 times, along with the word Lord. It is the most common title that is given to Jesus. And so the, the the title Christ is incredibly important. Now, I grew up in church, and when I was little, I always used to think that Christ was his last name. You know, I was Josh Swanson. <laughs> And he was Jesus Christ, you know, Jesus Christ, you know. And some of you, you thought that, didn't you? You thought like, is that his last name, Christ? Where did you get that? Was it Mary Christ and Joseph Christ and now there's Jesus Christ? No, listen, uh, Christ is not a name, it is a claim. It is a claim about the vocation and identity of Jesus. It is the claim that Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus of history, is the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah of God. Now, you're like, okay, let's press that in a little bit more. Talk to me a little bit more about this word, Christ. So this word Christ, it's the Greek Christos, and it's drawn from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is translated as Messiah. And that word essentially means the anointed one. And there's this great story in the Old Testament that I think captures the essence of this word uh, anointed one, and it's when Samuel went to go find God's nest next choice for king. And one of the things they would do before a king would take the throne is they would be anointed with oil to show that this was God's choice. And so Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, because that's where God told him to go, and he comes with this anointing oil, and among Jesse's sons, God's choice for king was going to be there. And so he, he walks in, and he sees the oldest. And he is tall, dark, and handsome, perfectly fitting for a king. He's like, this has got to be God's choice for king. He's about to dump the oil on him. God's like, whoa, hold up. Not my choice. And he looks over at the next one. He's like, what about this one? Nope, not my choice. What about this brother? Nope, not my choice. He goes through all six. Not my choice for king. And Samuel's like, don't you have any other sons? You know, God's choice is supposed to be among your sons. He's like, well, we got one other boy, but he's he's the runt of the litter. He's out watching the sheep in the backyard. So... Samuel goes out and he discovers David, and when he sees him, God's like, that's my choice to be king. And he walks over and he anoints him with oil, and the anointing was saying, this is the chosen one. The anointing of oil was symbolic that this one is going to be clothed in the power of the Spirit to do the work that God had given him to do. Now, a little bit later, uh, this, this idea of uh, the anointed one, because there were other anointed ones in Israel's history. Of course, David was anointed uh, as king, and Solomon was anointed as king, and there were priests and prophets that would be anointed by God to be selected, his choice to be a leader. But this idea began to surface within the Old Testament scriptures that there would be an anointed one of all anointed ones. There were anointed ones, but there would come one who would be the anointed one, the messianic ruler. And in fact, um, a little bit later in the story of David, uh, God comes to David and he speaks to him about this coming anointed leader who would be the king uh, over every king. And he puts it like this. David has this dream. He's like, he's like hey, I, I want to build God a house. You know, he's a king. And as kings do, he lived in a great big palace. And so he's like, he was looking at his palace. He's like, I live in this real nice house and God doesn't have a house. He lives in a little tabernacle, a tent. I'm gonna build God a house. And so he goes to Nathan the prophet. He says, hey, I wanna build God a house. And Nathan says, that's a great idea. And later that night, uh, God appears to Nathan and says, Nathan, that's not a great idea. David has blood on his hands. Tell him he can't build me a house but go and tell him this good news, I'm gonna build him a house. And, and he goes and he tells David, and David's like, what do you mean, what do you mean? And God replies and he says this, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, somebody from the line of David, and I will establish his kingdom, and I will be his father and he will be my son. There will come a leader over God's people who God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And get this, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then the ancient prophets came to Israel in her darkest hours and began to build out this idea of an eternal king sitting on David's eternal throne. And on that day when the eternal king, the Messiah, the Christ would come into the world, all of the deepest ache in the human heart and soul would finally be satiated. And and the prophets had so much language to describe it. They said on that day when Messiah came, the exiles would be gathered, the outcasts would be welcomed home. The lost would be found, and the eyes of the blind would be open, and the ears of the deaf would hear, and the lame would leap for joy, and the glory of God would be revealed, and the sin that brought them into exile would be atoned for, and there would be forgiveness and joy. And on that day when Messiah would come, it wouldn't just be good news for Israel, this would become a global movement, and all of the nations would come to the Jewish king, the Jewish Messiah, to learn the ways of God, and he would... Judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. And on that day, listen, they would beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, their tanks. Instruments of warfare would become tractors, instruments of farming to bring fertility and productivity. Nation would not take up sword against nation. Neither would they train for war anymore. And this king, again, would not just be for Israel, but would be for all peoples, for all of us. He would be this messianic ruler, would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there would be no end. He would bring about cosmic healing and restoration of all that's broken in our hearts and lives. And the wolf would lay down with the lamb, and the leopard would take a nap yet next to the young goats, and the la- the calf and the lion uh, would lie down with each other. And a little child would lead them, and the spirit of God would be poured out from on high. And the wilderness would become a fruitful field, and the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the earth cover as the sea covers the earth. And even on that day, the prophet Isaiah said death would be swallowed up forever. And they held this hope in their hearts. One day, Messiah, the messianic king, the king over every king, the world ruler to whom all world rulers would give their allegiance would be born into the world. And do you see how Mark opens up his gospel? He begins his gospel by saying, I am telling you the story of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. Jesus is the long-awaited messianic king. He is the one our hearts, your heart, has been longing for. He has come. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, let's just press this a little bit further because on that day, or I should say before that great day, what the prophets had said, especially the prophet Isaiah and Malachi, they said the trigger that you would know that this day was coming, the prelude to this great day, you know, it's like the previews before the movie begins, there would come a voice. A messenger would come in the wilderness and he would get everybody ready for this great day. And, uh, and that messenger is spoken of in the very next passage in Mark. Notice, after he says, he talks about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, he says this, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, I want you to notice something. They are preparing the way of who? The Lord. Do you see that? Isaiah says, what is gonna come and get us already and then the glory of Yahweh would be revealed. And there's this interesting conflation in the Old Testament hope and promise of the Jewish Messiah that that sometimes it speaks about the coming messianic king, and sometimes it speaks about the coming of God among us, and it's conflated together, and it's kind of like, is the Messiah sharing the throne of God? Does God accompany the Messiah, or is the Messiah himself the very embodiment of God among us? And the prophet Isaiah said, the glory of the Lord would be revealed, but to prepare for the glory of the Lord to be revealed, a messenger would come, and what would be his role? Well, in the ancient world, you know, before a great dignitary would arrive on the scene, and remember, who's going to arrive on the scene? This is the dignitary of all dignitaries. This is the world ruler of all world rulers. He is about ready to show up, and so to prepare the way for the dignitary in the In the the ancient world, they would have to create a road, a highway for the chariot to ride down because no king wants to ride on a chariot, you know, kind of get bumped around because, you know, there's a pothole here and a little hill there. So they would flatten the roads and they would fill in the ditches and they would lower the little hills and they would create a straight path so that the dignitary could come in and before the great and coming day of god a, a path would be prepared but it wouldn't be l- a literal road in the wilderness the preparation that would need to happen would people's hearts would have to be prepared for the coming of god and so the one who came to prepare the way was this interesting fascinating voice in the wilderness whose name is john the baptist and john appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And, and people, they, they heard about this fiery prophet in the wilderness. You know, for some two, three, 400 years, Israel had been without a word from God. And now this fiery prophet shows up in the wilderness and clearly he's got a word from God for the, for the children of Israel and they're coming out to hear him. And when they come out to hear him, they are confessing their sins, and, and John is baptizing them in the wilderness. And why is he baptizing them? Well, because baptism was like a cleansing. It was like a bath. Get ready for the one who is to come. And you're like, but, but what was John wearing? And what was he eating? Because that's everyone's question. Well, John t- or Mark tells us, now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And so we're put on notice. John, he's hippie. He's grunge. Uh, he appears in the wilderness. He's eaten insects dipped in honey. And isn't it interesting that he highlights his fit? You know, like, like, why? like we don't know what Mother Mary wore. We don't even know what Jesus wore. But we, John the Baptist, he wore camel's hair. And, and we learn about his diet, you know. His di- he's eating locusts and wild honey, which sounds to me kind of like a hipster diet. You know, some kid from Silver Lake is like, you know, I need to work on my gut biome, so I've been, I read on the internet if I just eat <laughs> locusts and wild honey. Anyway. Um, but what's up with the diet, you know? Listen, it's symbolic. It is intended to sign something. And. The clothing, the the austere diet, it takes us back to the Old Testament, a description of an earlier prophet in the history of Israel whose name was Elijah, who also wore camel's hair. And the prophet Malachi said that before the great and coming day of God, when God would return, Elijah would, as it were, come again. And John the Baptist, Jesus would later say, is the Elijah to come. He wasn't, he wasn't like reincarnated Elijah, but he was a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah coming to prepare the people of God for the coming of God among us. He was the prophet at the turn of the ages to prepare us for the great and coming day of God among us. And what was his message? Well, here is the essence of his message. He preached saying... After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the lowest servile thing you could do practically in the ancient world was to stoop down and untie the sandal of somebody's grody, dirty toes and nail, toenails and feet. And John, who Jesus will later name the greatest born among women, he says, I'm not even worthy to go down and do the most servile thing for the mighty one who is to come. You see, John came to get us ready, to get us on notice for the coming of God among us. And again, how is he preparing God's people? It is through preaching repentance. And what is repentance about? Repentance is about change, It is about, look, you need to reorient your life because God is coming among us, so get ready. And then he invites them out again to be plunged underneath the waters of baptism because it's like a bath to be cleansed, getting ready for the coming of God. Coming up out of the waters is almost a reminder of of a new baby coming out of a birth canal with the water being broken. There is new birth and new beginning. A new beginning is coming for the created order with the birth of Jesus. And a new beginning is available for all of humanity with the coming of Jesus among us. So John the Baptist is getting the the crowds ready through a, a baptism of repentance. Now, interestingly and strangely, though, Mark highlights for us that in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. So now, finally the long-awaited one emerges on the scene. And get this, what is the first thing Jesus does when he emerges on the scene? The way has been prepared. Interestingly, he gets in line with the rest of the people who need to get baptized. And, and, And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why was Jesus baptized? I mean, this is the coming one. The great messianic king the one who will share the very rule and authority of God himself, the one who makes everything new, the one who brings justice and peace in the presence of God, the flood, the earth, who makes forgiveness of sins. Like, why is he going in the waters of baptism? Weren't the waters of baptism supposed to get all the people ready and prepared for his coming? All of these broken, sinful people ready and prepared for the coming of the messianic king? Why is he going into the waters of baptism? And I suggest it's at least for this reason, because in this act of baptism, Jesus is entering into solidarity with the rest of broken humanity. It's as if he's saying, look, I will identify with you ultimately giving us a prefiguring of what ultimately is going to happen on the cross when he doesn't just enter into solidarity in a symbolic way in the waters of baptism with the sins of humanity. He actually will bear the sin of humanity on the cross. And so Jesus goes and and, and he gets baptized along with everyone else. But of course, his baptism is different because when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, the heavens being rent open. You know, commentators will point out that this is something of a violent image, that the heavens being ripped apart. And it's an echo back into a a text in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 64, where the prophet, like many of us in our lives, in our darkest moments where it just seems like the marriage is falling apart or your parents' marriage is falling apart or the depression is so crushing and it won't go away and your anxiety is crippling and and, and the pain in your body is just too much and you're watching and you just find yourself praying, when, God, when will you tear open the heavens and come down? And the prophet Isaiah, uh, in, in Isaiah 40, he cried out to God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And here in the waters of baptism, we get a window into God's great answer to the prayer of his people, to the cry of the human heart that God would come down to deal with our pain and brokenness. And then the Spirit is poured out. You remember, the Messiah was the anointed one. The anointing oil was symbolic of being clothed by the Spirit Jesus now is anointed visibly as the spirit descends in the form of a dove and comes upon him. Jesus is the anointed one, the great messianic king. He is the one who is the fulfillment of that word from 2 Samuel 7 where the father said, he will be my son. And notice, after Christ is baptized the voice speaks out, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Do you see what all of this is? In Mark's opening prologue, he's saying, I wanna open by setting you on notice who Jesus is. He is the long-awaited messianic king. He is the one who is anointed by God. He is the one who has broken into this world to bring God's reign among us. And the Father says, you are my beloved Son. In you, I am well pleased. And here, Mark alludes to one other aspect of who Jesus is that he wants you and I to pay attention to. Do you see that phrase, with you, I am well pleased? That's an echo back into the prophet Isaiah. Chapters 42 to 54 of Isaiah opens up with a statement about God's servant, with whom he is well-pleased, on whom he will give his spirit to. And as the story of that servant unfolds, a different kind of narrative emerges than the narrative of a triumphant king that comes in and just takes over. Instead, the servant comes and he ultimately will suffer. And He will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and many people will turn their face from him and he will be despised and rejected of men. The servant will suffer and be rejected. And so Mark brings together with the statement from the father, these two aspects of Jesus. He is the anointed one, the messianic king. And yet strangely, he is also the suffering servant from Isaiah. And then again, After he comes out of the waters of baptism, Jesus now is off. And what's interesting, what does the messianic king do? What is his first order of business as he steps out of the waters of baptism? Does he go into Rome and walk into Caesar's palace and say, Caesar, make my day, you know? Come on. Now, strangely, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by the Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were there ministering to him. It's almost as if Jesus, or Mark is putting us on notice, that Jesus, when he comes into the world, the first and great enemy that he has come as the king to do battle with is not Caesar in Rome, and it's not Herod. It is the great enemy of humanity, the the, 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 the prince of the power of darkness, Satan, and in, in all of the dark powers, Christ will come and do battle with the devil. And in the wilderness, as he goes in reenacting Israel in the wilderness, 40 days where she failed, Jesus goes into the wilderness, and in the face of temptation, he succeeds. And it's interesting, the text says that the wild animals were with him. And I just wondered, were they with him as companions or adversaries, I like to think companions because my dog, Brutus, you know? But anyway, but the angels were ministering to him. And then our story ends. And I wanna just pause, I wanna pull back, and I just wanna reassert for us the main claim of this text, and it's simply this, is that Jesus is God's eternal King to come and to inaugurate and establish God's rule in God's world. That's why the very first words that come out of Jesus' mouth when he begins to announce the good news is this, the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is here. Which tells us something about the gospel of Mark and actually all the gospels. What actually is the story that the gospel of Mark is intent to tell? I think in a nutshell, it's simply this. Mark is gonna tell the story of how in Jesus, God was becoming king in God's world in a fresh way again. When you see Jesus's life, you see him doing battle against the demonic forces, You see him challenging the religious establishment. Ultimately, when you see Jesus go on the cross and when you see him raised from the dead and ultimately after resurrection comes the ascension where he ascends to the right hand of God the Father and he sits down. And at the ascension, what was Jesus doing? He was being coronated as king, as it were. He was sitting down at the right hand of God in the highest seat of cosmic authority where he rules as king over every king and lord over every lord. And so the Gospels are intent to tell us that this is the story of how God's, or of how Israel's long-awaited Messiah has come into the world, and how God has become king in God's world again. Now, I, I recognize. We think, well, if that's true, there are so many questions that we're asking. Like, if God is king in God's world, and Why did it seem like the world didn't change that much since Jesus came? I mean, there's been so many wicked rulers that have come and gone. There's been so many wars and violence. What does it mean to say that Jesus rules and reigns as God's king? Well, next week, we're going to get more into that. So can you hold on to those questions? But today, I want you to see that this claim is a subversive claim it is an intentionally subversive claim. Get this, um, this, is so, this is so interesting to me. How does Mark begin his gospel? He, taught, he uses this phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You think of the word gospel as a religious word. It, we use it to modify religious things like gospel music or gospel preaching. But in the first century, it was not a religious word, it was first a political word. Actually, in the ancient world, politics and religion were not really divided anyway. It was kind of all conflated together. And it was used in other places outside of the Gospel of Mark. In fact, in 9 BC, there is a little uh, artifact, a little bit of imperial pro- propaganda that we have that dates back from 9 BC. And listen to what it says. Uh, this is like a billboard, kind of like set up around Rome, just to put everyone on notice. Whereas the providence that ordains our whole life has established with zeal and distinction that which is most perfect in our life by bringing us Augustus, sending to us and to those after us a savior who would put an end to war and brought order to all things. Augustus was like, for the ancient Rome, the messianic king, who would come and bring order, the Pax Romana. The birth of the god, Augustus, was the beginning of the gospel. This is from 9 BC. And it's interesting because um, after Julius Caesar died, he was declared a god. Augustus then fashioned himself as the son of a god. And two other emperors were fancy or were uh, fancy they were fancy, to, to take that title for themselves. Do you know what two other emperors emperors took the title son of God? Nero and Domitian. And Mark opens up his gospel in Rome underneath the nose of Nero as he is persecuting Christians saying, no, I'm gonna tell you the real story. I'm gonna declare to you the real gospel. It is not the gospel of Caesar It is not the gospel of Augustus or Nero. I am telling you the gospel of God's true king who's come into God's world, which is Jesus. Jesus is the world's true king. Now, we don't have kings in our world, but we could put it like this. Here's the G7 leaders, you know, world leaders. Listen, Jesus is over every one of them. He sits in the highest seat of cosmic authority, and one day every world leader will give an account of what they did with the authority and power that was vested in them by their creator. And they will answer to Jesus who is the ultimate sovereign authority over all things. And so this is a deeply subversive claim, but it's not just a subversive claim, this is a personal claim. If Jesus is king over everything, then it means that Jesus does not exist simply to give you your idea of your best life now. Jesus does not exist to endorse our political ideologies or our ways of thinking, or certainly not our sense of rightness and betterness over all of those other people out there. Jesus has come in as the world's true king and one of the very first acts of what it means to engage in a life of discipleship to Jesus is to fall on your knees and surrender and say, Jesus, you are the king over every king, and I am not. It is to reorient your life and your identity and all that you are around Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not going to manipulate you and control you and drag you around or something. No. Remember, this is the king whose rule, whose kingdom is intended to bring forgiveness and real freedom and bring restoration and renewal in our hearts and lives. You will never go wrong to surrender more and more of your will and of your life and of all that you are to Jesus. So this is an incredibly personal claim. Now, next week, we are going to explore some of the difficult questions that I think emerge for us about this claim that Jesus is king, and what does that actually mean? Is this, is this kind of a spiritual idea that we're holding in our heads, or is there, what's the, what's the freight behind it, and what does it mean? And how are we to understand the last 2,000 years of human history of Jesus' ruling as the world's true, true king? So we're going to get into that next week. But this morning, I just wanna invite you to simply surrender afresh to Jesus as king. And many of us, you come in carrying things. You come in seeking to control all kinds of things. I don't know if there's any control freaks in the house. But you feel safest When you are in control, control what you can control, and I control a lot. And Jesus invites us to surrender, to let go, to trust, and to follow. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you recognizing that there is work that needs to happen in our lives, that there are areas where we want to hold the reins of control, places where we just don't trust that your way is the best. And I just ask, oh God, that wherever you might find us as we walked into this room today, that you would help us see that the news that Jesus is the true messianic king is the best news we will ever hear. God, would you enable us to believe that and in believing to release control and to trust and to surrender? And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, amen.